Welcome to episode 24 of the Fire Safety Matters podcast, where we bring you the latest news, views and opinion from across the UK's dedicated fire industry. My name is Brian Sims and I'm the editor of Fire Safety Matters magazine. We're delighted that this podcast is sponsored by the Fire Safety event, which runs at the NEC in Birmingham on the 5th, 6th and 7th of April 2022. To register for the show, visit www.firesafetyevent.com. As always, I'm joined on the Fire Safety Matters podcast by my colleague Mark Sennett, the CEO at Western Business Media. Hi Mark, how are things with you? Yeah, all good. Thanks, Brian. Uh, just returned from Intersec over in Dubai, which is obviously one of the biggest fire shows in the world. Um, it was a bit different this year because of COVID, but you know, I think uh, people were still happy to network with people and it was certainly good to catch up with a lot of our clients and some readers over there. So yeah, all good. How are things with you? Yeah, very good. Thank you, Mark. I'm working on one of our sister titles now, Security Matters, for the February edition of that, but also putting together the pages and content for Fire Safety Matters March print edition as well. I'm looking forward to the the two shows, of course, in April, the Fire Safety event and the Security event. Yeah, obviously a busy time for us with that. It will be our biggest issue of the year and, you know, hot on the heels of the new Fire Industry Association UK Guide to Fire Safety, which we obviously published in December and it's come out and, you know, really glad that people seem to have really enjoyed that. The FIA are happy with it too. So, you know, always keen to hear people's feedback, like with anything on this podcast or anything that we do. You can reach out to us on social media through LinkedIn and Twitter. And if you've got any comments on the podcast, just use the hashtag FSM podcast. But now we normally start off with the news on this podcast and, you know, we're not going to be very innovative today. We're going to do exactly that. But before we do so, just a reminder, you don't have to wait for this monthly podcast to come out to see all the latest news, prosecutions, products and services in the fire sector. You can go to our website, which is www.fsmatters.com. And when you're there, you can sign up for free to receive the copies of the magazine FSM for free and including the FIA guide. You can sign up to our weekly newsletter that has 54,000 people subscribed to it. And you can look at the number. There's a plethora of upcoming webinars that we've got coming up, Brian. Um, all you need to do is go to fsmatters.com and go to the website. And we'll be talking a little bit later about some of the uh, well, one particular new webinar that we were doing with Warren Spencer. We've got some good ones coming up. 16th of February, we've got one with FFE on detector systems and fire safety in large premises. We've also got one on the 23rd of February with the importance of digital fire logbooks. And we've got plenty more coming up as well. We've got wireless ones with EMS as well. So keep an eye out at fsmatters.com. Go onto the webinars tab in the main navigation and you can register to attend those free or look at any of our back archive of webinars, which are of course CPD accredited too. So yeah, lots to lots to go through. And of course, if you want to meet up in person for some networking, we obviously revealed on the last episode of the um, podcast that we're doing the first ever FSM Golf and Networking Day, which takes place on the 14th of June in 2022 at Celtic Manor Resort. We're going to be doing an hour and a half of CPD sessions, which you'll get a CPD certificate for, and we'll be announcing the content lineup in the coming weeks. There'll be free breakfast and networking lunch before we all go off for 18 holes of golf on the Montgomery course at Celtic Manor. And of course, yeah, there'll be trophies for the winners, the closest to the pin, the longest drive. So tickets selling fast. So please, please do consider joining us on the 14th of June. All you need to do is go to fsmgolf.com fsmgolf.com to get your tickets. Right, Brian, as I said, we start off with the news and we've got a really big story to start off with. I think we're going straight for the best at the start. Start off on our strongest foot, as they say. So 
In fact, I'm going to tell you about the biggest prosecution in UK fire safety history in terms of uh, a fine. It's, uh, it's, it's massive, and I, I don't know if you guys have seen it on our website, but it's a big fine for Bupa, um, and it's, it's nearly a million pounds in terms of the actual fine itself. So let me go through it now. So Care Home Services, so Bupa Care Home Services Limited has been fined £937,000 and £500, so £937,500 for fire safety failings in order to pay £104,000 in prosecution costs following a case heard at Southwark Crown Court. The verdict singles the highest ever fine for fire safety breaches in the UK. So the London Fire Brigade LFB brought the prosecution against Bupa under the regulatory Reform Fire Safety Order 2005. After firefighters were called to attend a blaze at Manly Court Care Home, which is located at John Williams Close in Broccoli, back in March 2016. So Cedric Skyers, a 69-year-old wheelchair user at the home, died in the fire while smoking unsupervised in a garden shelter at the home. A care assistant spotted the fire from a first-floor window and called 999 before in-house staff attempted to put out the flames, but sadly, Skyers died from his injuries. A subsequent investigation found that although smoking risk assessment had been carried out for Skyers, the process did not assess the residents' use of emollient creams, which contain paraffin and may be flammable, if allowed to build up on the skin, clothing or bedding. In addition, apparent burn marks indicative of previous incidents were found on Skyers' clothing subsequent to his death. This is something of which the care home staff said they had not been aware. They said that if they had been aware, they would have ensured more regular checks were made when Skyers was smoking. So LFB brought this case as there had been a failure on Booper's part to comply with the fire safety duties which placed Skyers and other residents at risk of death or serious injuries in the event of a fire. So obviously this is a truly tragic story, Brian. Um, but in court, um, be prepared guilty to contravening Article 11.1 of the Fire Safety Order, which, for those of you that aren't familiar, relates to management of fire safety measures. Specifically, the company accepted that it had failed to do the following. Ensure staff understood the risks from the use of emollient creams, Warn residents using paraffin-based products not to smoke or otherwise require precautions to take, uh, such as use of smocks and aprons. And instruct staff not to leave the residents using paraffin-based products smoking unsupervised. And carry out an individual smoking risk assessment of residents as normal with the control measures in place. I mean, this is a pretty horrific story. I mean, it doesn't take much to picture what actually happened here. You know, it, it, dreadful for the family and for the poor victim you know obviously the care home and staff to witness this you know it's a truly awful awful incident and it you know it, it, it so we're not just raising it for that reason but it's not just us that are saying that this is the single biggest ever fine for fire safety breaches in the uk so nine hundred thirty-seven thousand five hundred pounds what i would say is and i said this before brian on on the podcast unlike the health and safety sector which is for for failings as prosecuted by the health and safety executive, rather than obviously the fire and rescue services in, in, in fire situations. You know, we're used to multi-million pounds and hundreds of thousands of pounds fines in the health and safety sector for prosecutions. We're not used to that here. You know, this is the biggest fine ever, and it's not even a million pounds. So, you know, I'm not saying it isn't a significant fine. It's an unbelievably significant fine. Um, but this is one of the things that Warren and Spencer and I have talked about quite a bit, is, is the level of um, 
fines being levied against prosecutions enough to act as a deterrent? Well, you know, in this situation, this is a massive fine. And I would certainly hope that care homes that, and anyone working in a care home listening to this will take heed of this. And it shows just how important that these individual risk assessments for, for smokers and situations like this are. But it's a truly sad story and, you know, quite a monumental case, Brian. Is there anything else you want to add to that? There is, Mark. Uh, Paul Jennings, who's the London Fire Brigade's Assistant Commissioner for Fire Safety, has made comments on this case. He said, and I quote, this case is an absolutely tragic example of what the devastating consequences of failing to comply with fire safety regulations can be. There are a number of measures that the care home could have put in place in order to mitigate the fire risk posed by Mr Sky's limited mobility, emollient cream use and smoking, but none of these were implemented. Jennings goes on to state, Mr Skyer's family should rightly have been able to trust that he would be safe in a care home, when sadly the opposite was true. Such a large fine highlights the seriousness of Booper's failure to protect a vulnerable resident in its care. If there can be anything constructive to come from this episode, we very much hope it will be that anyone who has a re legal responsibility for fire safety in a building, whether as a landlord, property manager or a care home provider, takes note and makes sure they're complying with the law. So a really major piece of news to start the year, Mark. Absolutely, absolutely. You know, I echo those statements from from what you said there as well. You know, you'd certainly expect for someone to be safe from these things in a care home. So, Brian, what's the next story you've got for us? The next story we've got, Mark, is to do with the BSI, the British Standards Institution, and its role as the UK's national standards body. The BSI has just published a new code of practice for the fire risk appraisal of external wall construction and cladding of existing multi-storey and multi-occupied residential buildings. Primarily, the Code of Practice has been developed to support the upcoming changes to the Regulatory Reform Fire Safety Order 2005, which will confirm that the fire performance of external cladding systems is a material consideration. Uh, PAS 9980-2021, Fire Risk Appraisal of External Wall Construction and Cladding of Existing Blocks of Flats Code of Practice, to give it its full name, has been developed by a steering group of experts in the fields of construction, fire, housing and safety. Uh, the list of, or the cast of, uh, of protagonists involved here, Mark, is quite extensive. The steering group included representatives from the Building Research Establishment, the BRE, the Construction Products Association, the Consumer and Public Interest Network, the Fire Industry Association, the Institution of Fire Engineers, Local Authority Building Control, the London Fire Brigade, Department for Leveling Up Housing and Communities from the Government, the National Fire Chiefs Council, National so Social Housing Fire Safety Group, the Royal Institution of Chartered Surveyors, the Scottish Government, and last but not least, the Society of Facade Engineering. The code of practices for use by fire engineers and other competent building professionals when undertaking a fire risk appraisal of external walls, duly setting out a methodology by which to conduct and record fire risk appraisals of external walls, which can then be scaled up or down depending upon the complexity of individual buildings involved. PAS 9980 uses a five-step risk assessment process to assist in the identification of risk factors influencing the overall risk rating of a building, as well as mitigation steps that might improve the risk rating itself. Not all buildings will require an appraisal here, Mark. Of those that do, not all will require intrusive inspection. Further, the new Code of Practice outlines recommendations for the competence of professionals completing such appraisals, the word competence being used again here, Mark. The standard aims to assist with the ongoing effort to increase the number of competent professionals by providing the knowledge of fire risk assessments arising from various aspects of external wall construction. So anything to add on this one, Mark? It's a fairly major story again here, really. Yeah, I think we're going to be chock full of them in this episode, to be fair. I mean, well, I'll give a little bit more detail on this as well um, in, in a second. But what I would say is it's great to see that 
BSI has really gone very, very broad and wide with uh, input from about every association and body in the great and the good of the sector they possibly could have done in here, which is, you know, no one can say that there hasn't been a proper industry input on this, which which is great. For those of you that actually want to read the story in more detail, you can go to fsmatters.com and just type in the search box BSI issues PAS and it will come up nice and easily. But just giving a bit more information in the story that you wrote here, Brian. So where homeowners and building owners are faced with external wall constructions, which don't meet the expected standards, PAS 9980 provides a methodology for assessing the level of safety. It also identifies proportionate steps that can be taken to better safeguard residents, while in parallel seeking not to expose them to undue financial burdens. So also it's worth saying that the standard doesn't alter the obligations placed upon those carrying out building work on external wall constructions, nor does it affect the compliance of past building work, whether measured against the building regulations or contractual obligations. So just round off by saying, you know, the new standard is sponsored by the Department of Leveling Up, uh, Housing Communities and the Home Office. So, yeah, another major story. We'll certainly be talking about uh, Mr. Gove uh, later on and his levelling up in the next uh, section of news. But before we do that, Brian, you know, it's time to introduce our first guest of the podcast. He's our recurring guest. It's Warren Spencer, who is the Managing Director of Blackhurst Bud Solicitors, who are based in Blackpool. Now, I think people are well aware that Warren has prosecuted more cases than anybody else in the UK under the fire safety order, so we couldn't have a better guest to talk about legal matters on this podcast. If you've got questions you'd like us to pose to Warren, there's a couple of ways you can do it. Come onto social media, Twitter, LinkedIn, and use the hashtag FSM podcast, and you know, we'll pose him a question. But actually, we're going to talk about a really, really interesting topic today, Brian. Um, I can exclusively reveal that during this interview, we talk about an online seminar that FSM is actually partnering with Warren on. And it's it's, it's all to do is, is the fire risk assessor's voice being heard? So without giving anything away, I'll let Warren do that himself. So I sat down with Warren earlier today, and here's what he had to say. Welcome back to the podcast. We're back for 2022 and we're thrilled that you're still a guest for us on every monthly edition now that we do the Fire Safety Matters podcast. Did you have a great Christmas break? It was quiet, obviously, with the restrictions that we've got in place, but it was a nice and welcome break. Thanks, Mark. Well, we obviously did a big conference together, which I want to talk about today before Christmas. It was the first time that we partnered together to do a fire safety legal conference. It was a pay-to-attend digital conference, and it focused on the new fire safety bill. So just wanted to use today's podcast, because this was a really useful session. For those that didn't hear it and take part in it, can you tell us a bit more about what you covered? Because it wasn't just you either. You obviously had leading barrister Joseph Hart was part of it as well. So what did the session cover, Warren? So we dealt with the fire safety bill as drafted as it is at the moment and and the views on how it may alter anything if in fact the bill does alter anything in relation to the fire safety order. We looked at how the bill has now or is attempting to clarify um, Article 6 in relation to the fire safety order and what it may mean uh, in the future with in relation to the premises and the now more specific reference to what is covered by the order and what isn't. Yeah, and obviously this was the first time that you've uh, 
done a digital version of this because you know I don't think everybody knows this but you're quite an experienced trainer in terms of fire safety you, you've done numerous face-to-face events for what, what kind of things do you normally cover Warren when you do your training well there's two kinds of training that I do the first is for fire services and, and for fire safety officers in relation to enforcement and putting together enforcement files, enforcement notice appeals or prosecution files, collection of evidence um, and and things like that. So I I train in that um, arena, but also now quite a lot of training for um, private companies, uh, in particular um, companies with portfolios of premises and where responsibilities for fire safety management are shared with other companies such as supported living or um, shopping centres or airports, things like that. Now, obviously, this is quite a landmark year for the UK in terms of fire safety legislation. Right now, we've got two bills going through Parliament that we hope will get royal assent towards the end of the year, which is obviously the fire safety bill, which you discussed during that conference, and also the building safety bill. Now, we've talked off air about this before, but have you given any direct input or been asked for any input in the fire safety bill to give any views on it? Because obviously you've prosecuted more cases in the fire safety order than anybody else in, well, in history. Um, I, I have had um, talks with the Home Office in relation to the fire safety bill. Um, I had um, a couple of uh, Zoom calls during the first lockdown um, and gave examples of cases that I dealt with and provided my view of where the order needed looking at and needed reviewing. I mean, in a nutshell, we talked about this before, and correct me if I'm wrong, I I think you've actually said that from what you can see so far, this is a very welcome look at the fire safety order, isn't it, through the fire safety bill? This is something that you actually support the government looking at. Absolutely. It it was drafted in 2004, and um, although it's the Fire Safety Order 2005, it actually came into being and into effect on the 1st of October 2006. So, you know, we're talking about this year being 15 years um, since the Fire Safety Order came into effect. And obviously, during that time, the order's been tested. There have been, you know, up to about 800 cases. And it's time now, I think, that you need to look at it to see if it's still fit for purpose. And also, if... Um, the way in which the world has changed, digitalization, etc., um, whether it needs looking at, and clearly uh, to take account of things that have happened, which we need to learn from, which has obviously happened over the last few years. Well, obviously, we're soon going to be announcing another similar digital conference, which we will reveal in the next podcast, uh, how people can get involved and enjoy. But you know, we're lucky to have you in terms of giving legal advice. But if people want to get in touch with you outside of this podcast, reach out. What's the easiest way to do so, Warren? A lot of people contact me via LinkedIn. I'm on Twitter as Fire Safety Law. I have a website, uh, firesafetylaw.co.uk, which has, um, on that platform, you have the opportunity to make any kind of inquiry uh, and obviously i'm a solicitor at blackhurst bud solicitors and uh, we're easily accessible on the net as blackhurstbud.co.uk and if you want to look at any of the great articles that warren's done for us in the past and there have been numerous just go to our website which is www.fsmatters.com and if you type warren's name in the search box we've got a plethora of articles from him so warren we're looking forward to seeing you back next month and thank you for, for your time on this episode thank you mark stay well
As always, our thanks to Warren Spencer. And as I said before, if you want to get any questions to us for Warren, just use the hashtag FSM podcast on either Twitter or LinkedIn. So now, as always, we return to the news. And it's, well, this story, Brian, actually made national news. And I think everyone will probably have partially heard this, but I doubt I'll give it the level of detail that you did on our website. So this news story is all about the government forcing developers to fix the cladding crisis. That's what you titled it, Brian. So if you go to fsmatters.com and type in government forces developers and you will find it. So this story, big news story. Michael Gove, who for those of you that don't know is a Secretary of State for levelling up housing communities, has warned developers that they must pay to fix the cladding crisis they caused as he continues to overhaul the Conservative government's approach to building safety. Gove has written to the industry, duly outlining a deadline of early March to agree a fully funded plan of action, including remediating unsafe cladding on buildings of between 11 to 18 metres in height of buildings. The current estimated cost for this is said to be circa four billion pounds. You know, before I go any further on this, I'm sure there'll be people you listening to going, "Why have they chosen between 11 to 18 meters? What about buildings smaller than that?" And uh, that's probably a conversation we could have all day uh, and all night on this. But you know, it is a step in the right direction, nevertheless. So yeah, they are going for buildings between 11 to 18 meters. So furthermore. Uh, Michael Gove has warned that he will take all steps necessary to make this happen, including restricting access to government funding and future procurements, the use of planning powers and the pursuit of companies through the courts. He adds that if the industry fails to take responsibility, the government will, if necessary, impose a solution in law. So the Secretary of State is also due to make an oral statement to the House of Commons announcing plans to protect Innocent leaseholders, many of whom are trapped in unsellable homes and face excessive bills to fix dangerous cladding defects. In addition, Gove will also unveil a package of measures designed to restore common sense in the industry and end the situation of buildings being declared unsafe when they're not. So in the letter, Michael Gove said, Our homes should be a source of security and pride. For too many of the people living in properties your industry has built in recent years, their home has become a source of misery. This must change. It's neither fair nor decent that innocent leaseholders, many of whom have worked hard and made sacrifices to get a foot on the housing ladder, should be landing with bills they cannot afford to fix a problem they didn't cause. So Gove goes on to say the government has accepted its share of responsibility and made significant financial provisions through its ACM cladding remediation program and the Building Safety Fund. Some developers have already done the right thing and funded remedial works, and I commend them for these actions, but too many others have failed to live up to their responsibilities. So in the communication, Gove asked companies to agree to the following. Make financial contributions to a dedicated fund set up to cover the full outstanding cost to remediate unsafe cladding in buildings 11 to 18 metres high. Fund and undertake all necessary remediation work on buildings over 11 metres tall that they have played a role in developing and provide comprehensive information on all buildings over 11 metres high which have historic safety defects which they've played a part in construction in the last 30 years. So the clear majority of buildings between 11 to 18 metres high are safe while others that do have combustible cladding may also be safe but can be made safe through effective use of existing or new fire safety measures such as sprinkler systems and alarms. There are, however, a small number of residential premises with unsafe cladding which must be addressed, said Gove. So, yep, this has been a national story, Brian, hasn't it? It's been all over the news and obviously we're going into some depth here. Certainly, 
I would support, you know, uh, Michael Goh's position, the government's position on this, for sure. I'm sure many of these would say they can go further, you know, and they'll be say this and blame there themselves, which the government has addressed again in that statement. But, um, yeah, it's, it's certainly a necessary step. And I fully support the idea that they should go ahead and try and prosecute anyone that fails to uh, support this if they've been involved in the construction. So, Brian, is there anything else you want to add to this story? There is, Mark. Uh, Michael Goyroyd firmly believes that developers must take forward all necessary remediation work at pace, quote unquote, prioritising those structures with the greatest risk in the first instance and in all cases, finding the quickest and most proportionate solution to make buildings safe. He's calling on industry to, and again I quote, enter an open and transparent dialogue with the government to hear its proposals, starting with a roundtable involving the largest residential developers and trade bodies. The government will invite leaseholders and those affected by the Grenfell Tower tragedy to the table to discuss solutions at appropriate junctures in order to ensure discussions are not taking place behind closed doors, Mark. Going forward, the government will announce a decision on which companies are in scope for funding contributions following discussions with industry but expects that funding to cover all firms with annual profits from house building at or above the £10 million mark. Now, I've written several other news articles on this issue in the last couple of weeks, Mark, so I would encourage our readers to take a look at them if they haven't already done so. So our final news story on this episode of the podcast, UK businesses are placing employee and customer safety at risk, apparently, by failing to test their fire safety systems in order to meet legal requirements. According to a detailed survey conducted by fire safety specialist JLA, 20% of businesses only test their fire alarm systems once every year, while 40% have not given all of their staff members training on the common causes of false fire alarms in the workplace. With employees and customers returning to workspaces now and also retail stores following the pandemic, JLA's study highlights that many companies are ill-equipped to deal with the growing risk of fires at their sites, in turn posing huge risks to their employees and customer safety. The nationally representative survey of 250 business owners has unearthed the fact that over one third of businesses, that's 38% of those questioned in fact, do not have suitable fire risk assessments in place. Upwards of 80% don't include details of regulations about fire alarms and the risks they pose within their company handbooks. What's worse, apparently, Mark, is that almost 40% of the businesses surveyed have not given all of their staff training on the common causes of false alarms and how to mitigate the risks of them happening within the workplace. This is particularly prevalent, apparently, in restaurants, bars and cafes, where that figure rises to 75%. If businesses don't train their staff members in fire prevention techniques and best practice, the associated risk could well be pretty huge. In particular, damaged reputation, loss of revenue and a decrease in business efficiency are all potential consequences if businesses and employees are not prepared to deal with the impact of a false fire alarm sounding. Conducted as part of the company's false fire alarms campaign, JLA's research reveals a huge lack of business preparedness in mitigating the risks associated with false fire alarms. To best prepare for such risks, businesses should, according to JLA, ensure effective and regular maintenance of all fire alarm equipment, provide training to employees on how to prevent false fire alarms, ensure that employees know how to respond to a false fire alarm in order to minimise disruption to the business as a whole. So what are your thoughts on this one, Mark? Do you know what, Brian? I was going to go into a bit more detail about this story, but you know, it, it just irks me, um, the results of surveys like this. So for those of you that do want to read more detail, go to fsmatters.com and in the search box, just type one third of UK businesses or 
you know, fire, uh, testing fire alarms in line with the law. But actually, I'm not going to go into more detail. I'm just going to rant, uh, which I know I normally do on this podcast. I mean, those statistics are so frustrating to listen to. You know, let's just pick out a couple of them, Brian. So, you know, 40% of businesses surveyed have not given their staff training in common causes of fire alarms. If you've got a problem with fire alarms, number one, like the main part of this story is test the damn fire alarms, have a proper testing regime in place. If there is issues with false alarms, also do train your staff them and, or, or you know, heaven forbid, actually get a fire detection system that um, is more reliable. You know, there are multiple different forms of fire detection systems that you could use. Um Oh, gosh. I mean, th- these statistics are just truly dreadful. You know, um, when, when you when you look at this, 38% of them uh, and took part of the 250 companies in there haven't got a suitable fire risk assessment in place. I mean, these companies deserve to be prosecuted, Brian, let alone anything else. It's gross negligence, gross incompetency. It's putting their staff potentially their punters, their premises, the public at risk. I'm just, there's no excuse in the modern day and age to not have proper fire risk assessments, not to properly test your fire alarms and to properly train your staff and making sure how to use these systems, having evacuation policies in place and not teaching them how to respond to fire alarms. My word. I mean, it's not hard, Brian, to do this. It's the law to comply with. I mean, this survey result is just truly appalling reading. And, you know, this is why I do fully support the fire and rescue services enforcement departments proactively going out and visiting premises, uh, particularly restaurants, etc., to make sure people are compliant. Because, you know, this could lead to absolute tragedy. You know, you've outlined, you know, it could lead to a total loss fire and destruction of a business and the economy. Yeah, absolutely true. And as we know, the majority of companies that suffer a major fire don't ever reopen their doors. That's all accurate. We said it before. But, you know, there, there is a life aspect to this, too. And, and those statistics are horrendous. Anybody that's taken part in that survey, as a business owner that hasn't done that, should be embarrassed. And quite frankly, are lucky they're not getting prosecuted. And I will shed no tear if the proactive inspections identify those companies for their failings and they get prosecuted because they need to learn. And this comes back to our very first story of, you know, where Booper had the massive fine and comes back to, you know, my comment then about not, in my opinion, not enough is done to act as a deterrent with people in enforcement action in terms of level of fines. This survey is exactly why fines should be as high as possible to teach people a lesson to make sure they comply. If they won't comply on their own, they should be scared into complying with, you know, proactive enforcement that lead in big prosecutions. This, Brian, you know, well-written story by you, really interesting, just absolutely awful to read, to be quite frank. So, Brian, you know, rant over. And now, as I've said to people before, if you want to see the latest news, prosecutions, um, all of our webinars, products and services, you have to wait for this podcast to come out, you can go to fsmatters.com and see all of that. Go our back archive of webinars, upcoming webinars, and sign up to get the magazine for free or to our weekly newsletter. So it's time to introduce our second guest, Brian. Who have you got for us? Our second guest on this edition of the Fire Safety Matters podcast is Stuart Letley, Director and Owner of Clear Safety Services, 
the specialist consultancy focused on safety, compliance and risk management. The company boasts extensive experience of working with housing associations and education sector bodies, but also works right across both the commercial and public environments. A chartered safety and health practitioner, Stuart founded the business back in 2015. Having studied for BSc and MSc degrees at the University of Birmingham and the University of Manchester respectively, he then went on to become Managing Director of RSA Environmental Health and Director of Safety Services at Hansom. During our interview, Stuart covers a number of key topics, among them the cladding issue, fire safety risks in the housing association sector, the recent fire at New Providence Wharf, and also anticipated further changes in the fire safety environment now that the Fire Safety Act has passed into law. Post-Grenfell, Stuart, what do you believe to be the most significant challenges facing today's housing associations? I think primarily what they need to do is um, is understand the risks uh, that are specific to each of their properties, each of their buildings, um, probably more specifically those that, that are cladded um, because of the specific re- uh, issues that came out of uh, out of the Grenfell fire and, and what we understand uh, caused and made that so um so tragic. That in itself means that they then need to, to try to understand what is the appropriate evacuation strategy for each of those properties. And that may, may need some adjustment. So um, once they've understood what the risks are specific to the property and then taking into account things like cladding, which may not have been taken into account previously under fire risk assessments because they were very often excluded uh, from that process. Um, adjusting the strategy and then communicating that strategy to the residents presents a significant challenge and making sure the residents understand what is expected of them in in any given scenario, um, particularly obviously um, during an escape scenario. And And then to allow that whole process to happen, the challenge then becomes, well, how do we actually make that happen Um, via a fire alarm system and detection system. So um, there tends to need some adjustment. So for instance, if you're you're switching from a strategy that is essentially stay put and believe that the strategy needs to move to a simultaneous evacuation, i.e. everyone out all at once, then the fire alarm system needs to be able to accommodate that and make sure that, um, that people are given due warning that they need to get out. Um, and that, that, that can present quite a challenge and, and may actually need some financial investment to make sure that, that actually works and happens. There has been a pretty big shift in attitudes towards fire safety since the Grenfell Tower tragedy. How is your own business working with its clients to address the significant cladding issue? Well, the first thing, and going back to the first question, the, the first thing we would do with, it, with, with a client would be to help them understand what the strategy for each building should be. And so that effectively goes back to the fire risk assessment process and may need, may need additional assessment, um, uh, helping them to understand specifically the correct strategy. And then what we've been doing with a lot of clients is helping them to um, specify the correct detection alarm systems to meet that strategy. And then taking it one step further, we've actually been involved in the oversight of projects to install those new 
or um, additionally upgraded fire alarm and detection systems to make those strategies work. That, that's, that can be quite a complex process, um, particularly where you're dealing with leasehold residents um, and you have all sorts of access issues to get into those properties um, to make sure that you know, actually those that those properties are individually protected because what we're essentially doing in those scenarios is we're installing wireless um, detectors to each of the openings to the facades of those buildings. Um, and that, that's, you know, that's particularly um, crucial where you have cladded buildings that essentially are, are currently just being protected by waking watch. Um, which in itself presents its own challenges. Aside from cladding Stewart, what are the other most prevalent fire risks that you witness in the housing association sector and how are you advising your clients to mitigate these problem areas? So um, one, one of the first uh, uh, areas that probably uh, present themselves as a common risk factor in uh, in housing associations would be the residents themselves and, and I, I, I mean that in the um, in the most positive sense, because what what that really takes is is a degree of oversight, management, and communication to make sure that uh, that residents are behaving in ways that don't adversely affect fire risk. You can have the safest buildings in in the world with all of the um, uh, all of the mitigating factors in place to protect against fire safety. You could spend thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of pounds on fire doors. But if people wedge those fire doors open, they uh, they effectively become useless. Um, so what we do is we work with, with clients in housing associations to make sure that there is that continual communication, that flow of information so that residents understand the importance of fire protection measures. Um, but also at the same time to conduct continual building inspections so that, um, so that issues which might ordinarily only be picked up by fire risk assessments, uh, you know, um, uh, timescales which are significantly far apart. If you're actually inspecting those buildings weekly or monthly, then you're picking up issues like communicate, uh, like um, uh, accumulation of combustible materials in corridors or, or uh, communal spaces, the wedging of fire doors or the removal of fire doors. Uh, cutting cutting holes in fire doors for cat flaps and such like and all the weird and wonderful things that you find in properties. Um, on top of that, I would say it's making sure that housing associations stay on top of maintenance um, and have a gold star system to allow them to oversee that maintenance across what might be tens of thousands of properties so that they can see at a hawk's eye view where they are with maintenance of um, mitigating measures for fire safety. Um, uh, you, you might have a situation where, again, you've got protection measures in place, but if they aren't maintained, um, then that in itself presents a problem. And there's a recent fire in, um, in Poplar, um, which was made significantly worse uh, because of the fact that um, mitigating measures hadn't been maintained. In that, in that case, it was um, automatic opening vents, which hadn't actually opened um, when the detection system found that there was a fire. And that actually made the fire an awful lot worse. And then I guess the final thing would be the oversight of the remedial programme. 
housing associations will have fire risk assessment processes in place, but if they don't manage the remedial programme and have really robust oversight of that remedial programme for the actions that come out of the back end of the fire risk assessment process, then they're not actually moving forwards. So they need to make sure that there is somebody in place to oversee all of those remedials through to completion and that actually what the contractors are doing to mitigate those remedial measures um, is, is actually what they think they should be doing. Um, in, in some circumstances, that means a really robust post-inspection regime to check contractors' work for passive fireworks. Now, you mentioned the fire at New Providence Wharf, Stuart. It's believed to have been caused by a consumer unit catching fire, but it was seemingly the lack of any alarms being activated and also the failure in the smoke ventilation system that caused the incident to escalate. It's reported that only the escape route for the building's occupants was filled with smoke. What should or perhaps could have been done to prevent this scenario from unfolding? So this links back again to um, oversight of the maintenance programme. Um, as you correctly identify, in this particular scenario with New Providence Wharf in Poplar, um, what happened was that the detection system failed to do a number of things. Firstly, it failed to open the, um, the, the automatic opening vents, the AOVs. So effectively, what you had was a broken chimney uh, with, within the building. Uh, and, and also worryingly, it failed to open the cross-corridor fire doors. So you had the double whammy of effectively a smoke-filled building with no compartmentation. And so you had residents evacuating into common areas that were filled with smoke, um, which is extremely concerning. And that really was 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 the fact that the 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 responsible person was not aware that that system was not operational. So that to me identifies a problem with regard to checking those systems on a periodic basis and having a really robust maintenance regime that makes sure any makes sure makes sure that any such issues are identified and then corrected. Um, so that comes down to making sure we've got good contractors in place and having a really robust oversight of those contractors and having a system that gives you visibility to make sure those checks are happening and that we're happy with the outcome of those checks. And lastly, Stuart, subsequent to Royal Assent for the Fire Safety Act, what further changes do you anticipate in the sector, bearing in mind that the government is due to issue a new code focused on risk-based guidance? Um, so uh, we, we, have, we now have the Fire Safety Act 2021 in place, which has um, largely amended the Fire Safety Order, which was uh, some 15 or 16 years ago now in um, 2005. Um, so what, what we have is a scenario where um, duties have been clarified uh, and probably more specifically, the duty holders have been clarified uh, for parts of buildings such as cladding, balconies, windows, um, flat doors to specific flats where they open onto common parts. Um, and that, that has previously caused issues where they haven't necessarily been risk assessed, particularly external cladding to um, uh, to properties have, have largely fallen outside of the scope of fire risk assessment. And so changes to, to happen in the future are making sure that individuals that are conducting risk assessments and also are responsible for these areas that, that potentially cause us issues in, um, in fire safety are, are, are trained and competent. 
So there's a whole training piece to come, um, and that, that's that's going to be a change, and making sure that um, that when fire risk assessments do indeed happen, what the new legislation will also bring about is that there is additional communication of those risk assessments to residents, and effectively, um, uh, for, for some of these properties, the fire risk assessments will be will, will form part of a register so that they can indeed be interrogated. The results of those, the residents will then know and so they will understand um, much more about the risks that are presented to themselves. So that, I think that's a really positive change, but there is more to come. There's more changes to happen um, because we've had that change specifically with regard to the Fire Safety Act, but also in the post is the Building Safety Bill which will look at the regulatory regime um, and and how uh, building safety is actually enforced. Um, and that will bring about a number of changes as to uh, what, what uh, an enforcing body will look at with regard to building safety, um, but also who will enforce it. And, and that will sit under a new body, under the Health and Safety Executive, which I think is a really positive move. So you have this double approach, really, with... Um, better assessment, better training and competency and understanding of building risk, particularly in higher risk buildings for those that are assessing and managing them. And then you have a more robust regime coming with regard to the regulatory regime uh, to enforce it. And then there's one further thing on top of that, what the Fire Safety Act is, is enabling is some secondary legislation that which will come after the full Grenfell inquiry has completed. And when that has completed and the recommendations come out, there will be additional sets of uh, measures which the Fire Safety Act um, will allow to come into place without additional legislation being required. So um, we've had the major tragedy that is Grenfell and if, for want of a better phrase, the one silver lining that's coming out of that is that we're learning from it and hopefully residents will be safer in their, their own homes going forward. us to the end of this latest edition of the Fire Safety Matters podcast. Many thanks indeed to Stuart Letley from Clear Safety Services and also Warren Spencer of Blackhurst Buds Listers for their great contributions. You can read more on the issues raised here and others by visiting the Fire Safety Matters website at www.fsmatters.com. We do hope you've enjoyed the content and found it informative. Please do contact us if there are any particular themes or issues you would like us to explore on upcoming broadcasts. You can do so on Twitter by using the hashtag FSMPodcast. On that note, do make sure you follow us on Twitter at fsmatters underscore mag and also access our LinkedIn page at Fire Safety Matters magazine and website. Please do like and share the content of our regular podcasts and spread the word among your industry colleagues. You can listen to the Fire Safety Matters podcast for free on iTunes, Spotify, YouTube or Podbean. All you need to do is enter the term Fire Safety Matters into your chosen platform search box. We'll see you next time. <music>